Welcome to episode 50 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'll be turning things over to Kara Goucher and Shanna Burnett to lead this interview as we welcome Floyd Landis to the show. Floyd, of course, is the famous or you might say infamous cyclist who won the Tour de France in 2006 before receiving a doping positive in that same race, which would cause his title to be stripped. Floyd grew up in the sport as a mountain biker before turning to the roads and having quick success, which caught the attention of one Lance Armstrong and the U.S. Postal Service team. He went on to ride with Lance as a domestique in the Tour de France for three of his seven victories from 2002 to 2004, where he also learned the dirty side of the sport and began doping himself. Floyd fought his doping positive from 2006 to 2010 before finally coming clean and deciding to tell the truth. And his truth-telling was one of the dominoes that ultimately led us to learn the truth about Lance himself. This interview happens to coincide with the new 30 for 30 documentary about Lance that will be released on ESPN today in two parts, one coming this week and one coming next week. And Floyd responds specifically to at least one quote of Lance's that is coming out of that documentary. Floyd also gives us a deep look into the mind of a doper and the progression of his own decision making in this case. You might wonder why we have someone like Floyd on the show. and. For that question, I'm going to turn it over to Kara to kick things off, and she'll answer that question right away, and then we'll jump in with Floyd. Here we go. Hello, Clean Sport fans. Kara Goucher here. We are excited to bring you a new podcast today. I'm co-hosting today with Shanna Burnett. Shanna, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks, Kara. Yeah, are you excited about this podcast? I am really excited. This is taking some stalking and then some uh, like time where we were hoping that we were going to do this in person, but you know, our fates are different now. So happy to have him on though. Right. So I just want to tell our listeners, most of our listeners come to hear clean athletes talk about their passion for clean sport. And I think that that's awesome. Obviously that's our main platform, but I think it's really important that we talk to people who have taken a different path. And we had Tyler on, and I think we learned a lot from that episode. And so when someone is remorseful and someone's willing to talk about what happened and how they chose that path or he or she, I think that's really important for our listeners and for us to learn. So I just want to welcome Floyd Landis to the podcast. Floyd, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. So we want to talk about young Floyd. Like we know you grew up in a Mennonite community, but can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood and what that was like? I grew up in, in Lancaster County, where most people are familiar with the Amish community that's there. It's you know, it's now it's a little more uh kind of assimilated with not necessarily Philadelphian city, but there's, it's a little more, it's a little more accessible um, for the Amish and the Mennonite people there um, to see what's in the rest of the world. And when I grew up, it was a little more isolated. And so, yeah, I mean, look, I had wonderful parents and they, they, they believe in, they believe the Bible. They're, it's a, you know, it's an Anabaptist religion. That's the definition of it. And so they believe in just kind of a community that takes care of themselves and doesn't necessarily rely on the outside world to be um to be happy so 
you know, for whatever reason, I was a little more adventurous than probably my parents wanted, <laughs> but, um, but I had a, I had a good childhood. I mean, I had wonderful parents and I have, I have four sisters and a brother. So I grew up in a relatively big family and, um, just, it's like, it's a blue collar community and there's a lot of farming, but there's a lot of sort of smaller businesses in the industry that revolves around farming. Um, and so I had kind of a quiet childhood where I went to, um, I went to a public school, which is one thing that exposed me to kind of the outside world. My, my parents and even my other sisters, um, and brother went to private Mennonite school. I'm not sure why my parents sent uh, the two older kids to uh, public school, but that had a lot to do with my kind of wanting to see the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the summary of the, the short version. How many siblings do you have? I have four sisters and a brother. I have an older sister and then I have three younger sisters. And my brother is about four years younger than me. So we're spread out a little bit. My youngest sister, I guess, is just turning 30 and I'm 44. So yeah, spread out. That's awesome though. I like, I, there's so much to be said about the Mennonite community because there is a big sense of community and purpose and values. Did you find that growing up? Yeah. So I, it, 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 that's all exactly right. But when you grow up in it, you don't know any better. Right. And you see other things that you think you're missing out. Not that I regret leaving and seeing the world. I think it's good to have experiences and understand that the world's complicated and you know you can have your own beliefs like they do but and, and they're not they're not judgmental about it they kind of keep to themselves but um i would say that as far as you know as far as religions go it's, it's a good one they take care of each other and and it's a relatively small community so it's it's not um I don't know. It, it, it's hard to even really put it into words. Anybody that's ever been to Lancaster County can kind of see it. it's like a small farming community. And what were you like? Like, were you a competitive kid? Were you like a class clown? Like, what were you like when you were younger? Uh, I don't, I, th I actually don't know what people would say if you talk to kids that I went to high school with. I think I was kind of shy. I was kind of, I, th I was kind of quiet because I didn't, I didn't really know what was going on most of the time. <laughs> I didn't have a TV and I didn't have, a, we didn't really have any, I didn't have access to the, the news. And my parents didn't talk about anything about politics or any, you know, anything outside of their own little world. And so I was kind of out of place most of the time. Like I didn't, I, I didn't have any, I didn't get a lot of the references people would make to, you know, current events or to culture television, things like that. So it took me a while to kind of be able to really feel comfortable even socializing. I mean, I wasn't like I was a, a loner and didn't talk to anybody, but I was kind of trying to figure it all out. Oh, I could completely relate to that. I was very much a sheltered Christian child, you know, that never went to a party. I mean, references just went whew, over yeah. my head every time. I mean, that was me in a nutshell growing up. Like, thank God I had running um, because... <laughs> I always said there was two important things like was running and God and it kept me on the straight and narrow, but I was so naive. Yeah. So I think it was kind of that for me too, was kind of therapy. Like I would go ride and try to think and figure it all out. But I think a lot of people treat, you know, endurance sports that way, especially if they get into it at a young age. 
For sure. So tell us about that. Like how, when did you first start cycling and how did you get into racing? I got a mountain, mountain biking kind of came along in the late eighties and I was in high school from, I graduated in 94. So about the time I started going to high school, mountain biking was kind of this fad thing. And, and a friend of mine got a mountain bike. So I went and bought one at a local shop. And at that time it was a lot more grassroots. That was before it kind of turned into this professional thing where the UCI ran it, but there were a lot of local races. So a lot of the local bike shops would put on a race and, and they were close by. I mean, I didn't have far to go to pretty good mountain biking trails. And so the bike shop that I bought my bike from was called Green Mountain Cycling. Still, still exists. Um, they put on a, a relatively large race for the area. There's probably, you know, 500 people or something. Because um, it's, it's, it was similar at that time to a lot of the way local running events are. It's kind of died on that level just because it's for a lot of reasons. But USA Cycling isn't great at managing the grassroots side of things. Um, but the guys at the bike shop said, yeah, you should come do this race. And so I think it was like 10 miles from my house and I rode to it on Saturday morning and did the race and then rode home. And I loved it. I mean, I, I was already kind of hooked on just riding anyway for the feeling of it. But then when you added the race to it, it for me, it was like, it was the greatest thing that ever could have happened. I was like, okay, we got to do this more. I didn't know that much about, or even, I didn't probably know anything at that time about professional cycling or certainly not about road cycling, but um, it wasn't, it wasn't initially some aspiration like that. It was more just kind of an addiction in itself, just the feeling of it. Yeah. And it, you're really not only talented, but really tough too. So, I mean, I've definitely read all about that on you. So what was that transition like from mountain biking then to road biking? So I, I raced mountain bikes. Um, I, I was a, a couple of things happened that were, that were fortunate, um, in the context of just, you know, my cycling career, but, uh, in, in 93, they had, uh, it was starting to become kind of a larger professional sport at that point. And they had the national championships in Michigan. And so I'd done a few races the, each year, the years before that. And I convinced my dad to take my friend and I out to the, you know, it was called Norba. I think it was North American. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. Norba was what the league of the mountain bike association was called before USA cycling took over. Um, and so we drove out there and, and I won the junior cross country category. And so I got this, I think they paid for my trip to go to the world championships in France, which was the first time I was ever on an airplane or ever had ever gone anywhere. And it was that, that part was not a great experience for me. I was way, way in over my head on every level. Um, but that kind of gave me the, a better picture of, you know, how big cycling was in other places. And, um, and so I, I pursued that for a, for a couple of years and I, I did well in, I'd say 93 through 95 or 96. And about that time, it kind of became a, a much more professional sport in the sense that there were a lot of guys that used to race on the road that came over to race mountain bikes and the, and the level of of fitness and, and everything else that came with it in cycling was dramatically different in, in a very short period of time. Like in 1997, 98, the speed of the races, 
I mean, it felt like it doubled. I, I, it just was dramatically faster. Um, and I wasn't doing as well, but I was in better shape. And so I, there was like, there was one winter where I was just kind of going to quit. I, it was, I think 1998, I had moved to, to California in 95 and I was living in San Diego. And so I thought, I didn't know what else I was going to do with my life. I wasn't, I liked what I was doing. I didn't really have any other plan. Um, so I just kind of got a road bike and rode around San Diego and East County for most of the winter and um, rode with the club there. And I hadn't really ridden on the road that much before. And so um, there was a coach down there named Arnie Baker, who's, you know, kind of encouraged me to do a couple of road races. Um, and I was, I was better suited for racing on the road because they mountain bike racing is kind of, um, it's for me, it was more difficult because of the way the, the start is so important. Whereas road racing, the start really generally doesn't matter. You kind of, I mean, it might be fast at the start, but it's not like mountain biking where if you don't sprint and get to the trail head first or the single track first, then you're jammed up and it doesn't matter what your fitness level is. You can't really make up that time. So I, you know, I did some road races in California in 98 and um, I met these guys that ran the, Mercury cycling team was a one, probably the biggest U.S. based team at the time, um, sponsored by Mercury, the car company, and and they they had me come and race that first. That was the first year I raced on the road, nineteen ninety nine, um, and so you know they that team as a team had aspirations to go race in Europe as well, and so we did some other racing here. That's kind of how I got noticed or associated with the Pulse Service team too. But that's kind of how the trajectory of my life went. I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround from starting road racing in 99 to winning the tour in 06. So what was, what were those next six years like? Cause I mean, you obviously took off. Yeah. The, I mean, those, the only real hurdle I had to overcome in those six years, I mean, the only real kind of glitch in, in my, you know, progress as a cyclist, was 2000, I think 2002 in the spring, I, I fell and broke my hip, or it was 2003, I guess. Yeah, it was spring 2003. Um, but previous to that, so I raced on the Mercury team through 2001. Um, and then I got hired on the Postal Service team for the 2002 season. And it, I mean, I was, it, I, in, a, in a lot of ways, I was lucky because the, the, the Mercury team, we, we had a great team sort of format for racing the U.S. races, which are a little bit different than racing in Europe. Um, and we won a lot of races. And so if you get, you kind of, if you learn, if, if you have the fitness like I did from mountain biking and just sort of training for that, you can learn the tactics a lot easier if you're with a group of guys that already know how to win. So that, that part kind of solved itself, right? I didn't know that much about road racing tactics, but I didn't need to. I kind of just do what I was told and learned it as, as I went. So it wasn't like I just got a bicycle and, you know, in 99 and won the tour in 2006, it was, I had already had, you know, quite a few years of hard training and, and some decent fitness, but um, yeah, it was it, like anything, right. It takes a little bit of luck no matter how hard you try. And so there was a couple of times where I was at the right place at the right time and got on some really good teams. And, and then obviously then I was on the postal service team in 2002 and uh they put me on the tour de france team and again it's it's a whole different experience if you're there with a group of guys that has the mindset of we're going to win and they have the ability to win too i mean it's like any like any 
large event like that, there's a handful of people that realistically can win, right? Absent some random thing happening. Um, so it's, I mean, it, that, that did a lot for, for my confidence too, because then I'm part of the winning team, right? So, uh, I mean, I think with, you know, just like a lot of groups and training clubs and coaches, right? It's like a collective um, of doctors and coaches. And you have those teams, like you said, that are, you know, that train hard and work together. And then you have teams that are more of a win at all cost team. So when did you start seeing that dark side of cycling? I know like with Tyler Hamilton, he specifically talked about his first white bag that he was given. When did that enter for you? So I, it, when I joined the Mercury team in 99, I hadn't really had any exposure to it. And I, and I wasn't, I was never on well-organized mountain bike teams um, as well. So I wasn't exposed to any of the doctors that kind of, back in, in 90, say, say 97, 98, there were a bunch of guys from the Festina team that switched to mountain biking and they came with their own coaches and all. Like, I mean, it was literally the same guys that run road racing. Um, but I wasn't really part of that. I wasn't really part of that club either. I was kind of just doing my own thing. And so I didn't really, I didn't hang out with them socially. I didn't have any firsthand experience with, with the pharmaceutical side of it. And I, you know, I heard rumors, but, and I figured some of them might be true, but I had no way of knowing really. And I didn't really go looking for it. It wasn't, it wasn't on the front of my mind. I was, I was racing my bike, doing the best I could. And because I hadn't seen it or experienced it, it was just kind of a thing that I figured might be real, but I didn't really know. Um, and then I switched to the road and and the guys that I raced with on the road on the Mercury team, at least the first year, um, were, were American guys that were happy racing in the United States and sort of knew the lay of the land in Europe. Some of them had raced there. Some of them um, had come back and just decided they didn't want to be part of that, you know, culture. Um, and so there was discussions about it. It was the first time I'd talked to anybody that seen it firsthand, right. And explained it to me, like, this is how it works. Um, and I didn't, but again, I didn't, I didn't feel like I, it wasn't like I thought I should go looking for it. I was, I was happy with the progress I was making, especially having switched to the road. I was enjoying that. There were things to learn and we were winning race. I mean, I wasn't necessarily winning race, but I was helping the team and we were winning. And so I was, I was content with the progress I was making. Um, but then over the next couple of years, because we had these aspirations to go to Europe with that team, um, they started hiring other, other riders who had won, you know, some of the biggest races in Europe. Um, they hired Pavel Tonkov, who was, a had won the Giro and done multiple, I think multiple times the top 10 in the Tour de France. And they hired a bunch of Belgian guys and some Belgian doctors, <laughs> doctors in quotes. <laughs> Um, but, and then that was, so then that was the first time I had, I actually had discussions with guys who more or less openly discussed what they were doing. And it seemed, I was a little bit shocked by their, their, uh, lack of any inhibition about talking about it. Cause I, I, at this point I had raced, you know, a couple of times in Europe, but wasn't part of that culture and didn't, you know, socialize with any of these people. So I didn't. I, I had assumed up until that point that, you know, if people were doing this, they were doing it in some clandestine way and they didn't, they told as few people as possible. But it, the, my experience at that time was that 
the guys that were on the big teams in Europe that had come to my team all of a sudden were perfectly open and talked about it as if it was taking vitamins, right? Um, I was a little bit shocked by that, and and it took me a while to kind of process that, and and I wasn't sure. Honestly, I was I in my own mind, I wasn't sure what I would do if I was confronted with that because I. I knew at this point I had done it long enough that I could see the difference that it made. Right. I could, I could tell that it, that it was, that it worked for, you know, what they were using it for. Um, but I didn't put a whole lot of thought into a, a black and white decision. Like, what am I going to do if somebody confronts me with this? Right. I, it was more like, wow, that's, this, these guys are just basically stating it. If this is the fact of the matter. And, that obviously I knew that that wasn't the the image that cycling was trying to portray to people that weren't part of it. So it was a weird kind of two different worlds that they lived in um, where on one hand they could speak openly like it was normal to me. But then if anyone else asked or if the press asked, they had this whole other story that made that couldn't be reconciled with, with reality. Right. Um, but that team also had a good doctor who did care about the, the cyclists and did try his best to try to keep everybody on the straight and narrow. I, I, I don't know the guys that the Belgian guys that we hired and Tonkov and those guys, Tonkov was coached by Ferrari at the time. So I think it's safe to assume he probably was continuing to use doping products at that point. But the, the main doctor we had was Prentice Stefan. You probably heard his name in the past. Um, and I, I was close friends with him. I lived with him in Nice. He rented a house and he had a, couple extra rooms and so a couple of guys phil's eye check actually lives in boulder had a bad accident a couple of years ago um he lived with me i lived there with prentice for probably six months in 1998 when we raced in europe and so i had a lot of discussions with prentice and he you know he, he knew the lay of the land I, I don't he had worked with some other large cycling teams in europe and i kind of decided that he wanted to be part of this mercury team because they had this sort of ethos or at least this approach that they wanted to do it clean I, I don't know if they really believed they could win big races clean or not but they wanted to try right but they also knew they had to in order to get into those big races they had to hire expensive riders that probably came with some other risks so it was a bit of a dilemma for for team management as well but um I'm sorry to go on and on with this but this is kind of just laying out my the timeline of my exposure to it right um but then the team so i guess 99 um 99 went all right it was more or less the same kind of i you know i heard it talked about but we had races we were focused on and i was my role was to try to help other guys and so it wasn't there was no expectation from me so 99 and 2000 but then 2000 came along and we had this um sponsor called um, the team that year was called Viatel. Maybe this was 2001. My years are getting a little muddled now. It's been a long time. But um, the team kind of folded halfway through the season because, the, you know, there was a stock market crash with the tech industry, and Viatel was a tech company that was supposed to be a sponsor, and then the team ran out of money. Um, so I didn't race the second half of that year. And in the meantime, I did – I had, you know, stayed in touch with some of the guys um, that managed the Postal Service team. They had asked me to come race there in 2001, but I already had a contract with um, Mercury. So then I reached out and, and I got it 
a contract for 2002 to race with them. Um, and so I had probably six months there between, let's say, July 2001 and the beginning of the season 2002 to really, because by this time I kind of, I had enough circumstantial and, and direct, you know, information to more or less know what was going to happen. Like I knew what I was getting into at this point. I didn't, I didn't know how they, they would address it, but I knew that the team, the Pulse Service team didn't win those three tours clean like that. There was no doubt in my mind. I, I knew it at this point. Um, so I decided that I, I mean, I just made a decision in my head, like that's how it's going to be. Then, then, and they're going to expect me to do that. And my job is to help Lance win the tour de France. If I make the site, the, the, the team for the tour de France, then, then I, I've got to decide in my own mind if I'm okay with it. And I, I just more or less made a decision that if assuming that they're, they're going to help me and show me the safest way to do it i didn't want to do anything to hurt myself like i was worried about that more than i was worried about i mean maybe this sounds um reflects poorly on me but i was less worried at this point about the the morality of it or the ethics of it than i was just the safety of it because it it appeared to be and it turns out it was i don't know what it's like now because i've been gone for a long time but but it was really like everybody there lived in two different worlds. Like if you were with cyclists and they were all in on it with you, then it was just openly discussed as if it was a matter of fact. And there wasn't any, I mean, there wasn't any kind of judgment about who, I mean, there, there, there was jokes and, you know, we might say, well, this guy's doing way too much or whatever. Haha. But it was, there was no, you know, animosity like that guy's cheating. This, this wasn't that. Um, and that's the way it was treated. And so I figured, I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. And, and if, you know, if I was going to have a career in cycling, then that's what I was going to be expected to do. Um, and I, I, yeah, I don't, it's, it's hard for me to, t to tell the story and not, I guess, come off sounding like I was easily just persuaded in my own mind that it was perfectly fine to do it. But well, I think you off, you obviously have to get to that point, right? In your mind that you are persuading it. And, and there's some sort of convincing to yourself, at least that it's fine and everyone's doing it. Yeah. You have to justify it. Otherwise it's, I mean, you don't want to feel like there's an unfair advantage because then you don't have any satis sense of satisfaction if you win. Right. You, I, I, I think that applies to most people. I don't think even, even Lance, I mean, I think people have different degrees that they'll go to to try to win, but everybody in their own mind felt like, well, look, everyone else has the same opportunity. If they want to do that, they can. So it's not like I'm, I'm somehow giving myself an unfair advantage. It's a twisted bit of logic, but <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? It's, I'm not saying that it make, it would make sense to somebody out of that context, but in that context, it seemed to make sense in your, in your own mind when you're faced with that. And then you add to it, you know, the, the, I mean, there's significant amount of money to be made in that sport. You add to it real financial incentives and it's hard to not just accept that kind of logic. 
I, I actually appreciate you walking us through all of that because I think we just hear like, and then they, and then they cheated. So it's <clears throat> interesting for us to hear how a person goes over a few years and comes to that conclusion. But can you tell us about the first time that you decided to do it and what that was like and what were your emotions like, or were you like, did you feel bad or were you just like, no, I made this decision? Yeah. So I, I decided, well, I, I, because I had decided in my mind that, and I, it's, it sounds like a leap, but it was so openly talked about that it was generally accepted that it was true in my mind as well. So I, I approached Johan Brunil in, in January at the first training camp, or it might've been the month before or in Austin or something. But at a training camp, I just, I asked him, well, what is the situation here? I said, the team I was on, we didn't have a medical program. I'm aware that there are teams with medical programs. And if you want to talk about it, I'd like to talk about it now so I can understand what I'm getting into. Right. Um, not addressing it as, as a, I, I'm undecided if I want to do it or not. Just matter of fact, like what, it, what is expected of me if I'm going to be doing this, just tell me. Um, and he said, just when the time comes, we'll, we'll take care of it. Just keep training and you know, you're in good shape. Just when the time comes, we'll, we'll address it. And so um, I guess I, I did pretty well at some of the earlier spring races. And I, you know, I initially at least got along with Lance, just kind of did my job. I treated it as he's the boss and I'll just do whatever he says. And he liked that. And that was, you know, at the time that was fine with me. So um, I ended up doing quite a few races with him because often there's politics involved in who does what races. And so he wants people around that are, you know, subservient or, or will help him win the race and that he gets along with. So um, I did three or four pretty big races with him in the spring. And then um, he asked if I wanted to go to um, San Moritz to train for a couple of weeks uh, before the Dauphiné, which was in June. Um, and so I, I went along with him and Ferrari was there and he kind of explained to me, McKelly Ferrari, um, you guys have probably heard his name. He's a, among the more famous doctors in cycling and he's a smart guy. And I think he genuinely, and again, some of these things sound conflicting, but I think he genuinely did care about people's health and safety, uh, but accepted that they're probably going to do this anyway. So, you know, he made a career out of it, not putting him on one side of the fence or the other. He just was, that's, that was his job. So, um, it, I think the first day we got to Sam Ritz, I went back to Lance's apartment with him and Ferrari was there and he gave me some, either Lance or, or McKelly gave me a bag with some, just some testosterone patches in it. And he said, just use these for three or four hours after we train each day, three or four days a week. Um, don't wear, don't wear them all night. Um, but you just need a little bit more testosterone and it'll help with your recovery. And I mean, I had already kind of thought it through by this point. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a, some kind of shocking um, event for me. It was more like, all right, well, it, it actually seemed fairly benign compared to what I had envisioned because it was just a patch. It seemed like, I mean, I knew it was a banned substance. I, I knew the rules, but it really seemed a lot less dramatic than some of the things we did later, right? Like a blood transfusion or some of these other things that just seem 
like you might be insane if you tried that, but it was just a patch. You put it on your arm and you wear it. And, and it's not like it, it had some overnight dramatic effect either. It was kind of a, along with probably some placebo effect, it had like a, just sort of a recovery, a noticeable recovery effect if you, if you train hard. And most people I don't think would even notice it in that dose. But if, if all you do is train and you, you know how you feel, you know how you expect to feel, that you can tell the difference. But I think most people think that there's some, you know, instant or even, even maybe a delayed dramatic effect, but it's more subtle than that. But it does, it does matter. I mean, it allows you to train harder and it, and it works. Um, but it wasn't some, you know, shocking event to me. So can you talk to us more about like the culture? Because there's so much about the collective that either helps you become a clean athlete or, you know, do things that are the wrong way. I mean, from the doctors that you just described, right. To Alan Lim helping you with your transfusions to a team leader, to the UCI. I mean, we all, the, all of that has a play in this part. And I think like, you know, so many times, of course, you know, the choices weren't good ones, but there needs to be more accountability, I think, in, in all the other players in this. Like, how was that? Yeah. So it's funny that you bring up Alan Lynn because he, I, I kind of put him in the same circumstance or situation or a very similar one to me. I mean, he, he hadn't been involved in any kind of – as far as I can tell, and I, I, I think – I mean, I got to know him pretty well. He and I – you know, spent weeks and weeks together training and um, it was just us. So we talked about a lot of things and I, I don't think he was misleading me. He had, he had just recently graduated from, you know, from school. He had spent probably 10 years in school. He's got a couple degrees, but um, I think I introduced him to more of how cycling worked. And eventually the fact that he helped me wasn't him trying to initiate it at all. I mean, th there wasn't any of that. Um, it was just kind of, I think after spending enough time and me explaining it to him, he just, I think he came to the same conclusion, like, well, that's just what it is. I mean, this is how these guys do it. And none of us, I don't think, I mean, I didn't like it. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't like the extra anxiety that came with the risk that was involved. That was not some kind of thrill for me. I think maybe there's some personalities that might've liked that. That was not it for me. Um, and I don't think it was that for, certainly wasn't that for Alan Lim. It was just more of, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. But, um, and, and I, th I think the same applies to him that we spent time thinking and being philosophical about it and trying to figure out if there was another way to do it, or if there was some other way to, to solve the problem or fix it. But it was so, I mean, even to this day, it's, it's hard for to, even if you read and are obsessed with cycling and you read all the news, it's really hard to get your head around how thoroughly saturated it was with people that were in on it. I mean, literally everyone. They're, even the guys that, that are kind of pointed to, like Christophe Bassons, who everyone says he raced clean, and he probably did. They, they didn't have a solution. None of them did. None of them did anything. They just kind of, I mean, from time to time, some news would come out or somebody was forced to, you know, say something in a court because there was risk of perjury and then they would get crucified for it. But, but even those people, they, no one had a solution. None of us had a, 
I mean, it's cycling was just kind of, it became this thing where it was two worlds. And I think for the most part, the press knew it too. I mean, they must have, right? I mean, frankly, for me, most of the time I spent thinking about it, I was more confused about how something, how a, how a, a conspiracy of, on that scale could even work with people being that kind of, that, that loose about the information. I mean, it wasn't as if, it, it, it just seems strange to me that it lasted as long as it did. Like for, for me, most of the time, I, every day I would think, okay, these, sooner or later, someone's just gonna spill the beans. Like this is, this is not sustainable. There's too many people that know. Um, but it didn't, it didn't happen. It took, it took the longest time. It's, it, it was bizarre. So it, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to just say, okay, those guys made the wrong decision and we did, but we did spend a lot of time trying to figure out like, how can we make this? So it was what we had envisioned it in the first place. And what I think most people that raced their bikes at that time and probably now wanted when they were a kid, right? Like I want to turn professional and I want to race and whether I win or not, um, I want the satisfaction to know and I did as well as I could do, right? And none of us felt like we could even get that satisfaction racing against everyone else who had already accepted it. And it, I don't want it to come across as sounding like an excuse, but I'm telling you that it was through and through. <laughs> everyone was in on it. And, you know, to this day, a lot of those people are still in cycling and that doesn't mean they couldn't change but it's very very difficult to change something that's institutional like that and so yeah i don't even i don't even know what the, what our initial point was here but i i wanted to just say that we weren't it, it wasn't like you crossed the line then you accepted it and now we accept that we're the bad guys we didn't necessarily like it either it, it it complicated life in a lot of ways that made made it not fun and i guess professional sports at that level when there's that much money involved they're going to be stressful and they're not that much fun anyway but it added a uh, dynamic that we, I think most of us would have been happy without that. We just didn't know how to do it. During this time, were you, were you loving cycling? Were you liking what you were doing? Or was there this feeling of anxiety all the time? Or were you still finding enjoyment in it? It was a different kind of enjoyment. I would say that it was more like once it got to that level and it wasn't, a, a switch where it happened overnight, but it, it wasn't the same satisfaction where you laid down and you, and you were just completely exhausted. And, and that was a good feeling in itself. There was always an underlying, you know, un, un, unknown possibility. Or there was a possibility and there was no way to know when it might or might not happen that it could all just go away in a, in a tragic event. Um, and that, so that, then it turned into kind of more just a challenge. Like, let's see if we can do it. Not, not the kind of pure enjoyment of just riding for hours and being exhausted and laying out and going to sleep and just being happy that you can be free and do that. Right. There was a time when that, that ended and then it was more like, okay, let's just see if we can beat these people, whatever the fuck this game is. I mean, I don't, I don't like it. I still like riding my bike. That part's fun. But as when that's over, when that racing part's over, I got this other anxiety I got to deal with now and I don't really like it, but whatever, let's just assume that's part of it. And let's just make that the game. Um, at least that's how I dealt with it in my head. I don't, I don't know 
you know, everyone's got a different personality and how they deal with that kind of anxiety. Or some of them maybe just didn't care. Um, and, you know, to this day, it, it's, it's dramatically different how people that get caught or treated, depending on which country they're in, too. So the risk wasn't the same for everybody. But for me, I mean, I knew the, the downside risk of it that was bad. Um, so for me, it just, I kind of just made it into a, a challenge in my head. Like, okay, this is a video game. Let's just, these are the, my pieces. These are what I can do with them. Let's just go see if I can win. It seems like you really compartmentalized a lot too, which it, you know, like out of sight, out of yeah. mind, kind of buried you it. You had to, yeah. Because, yeah, because it's, it doesn't, it, it, and that's everyone else's conclusion that they came to when they saw it. They say, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you ever make a decision like that? If you, if you step back and look at it, you just say, okay, I'm not, this isn't the only thing available to me in life. Why am I going to this extreme? But it was just a long process. Then once you get there, you're like, well, I might as well try. I mean, my alternative is to walk away because I can't figure out a solution. I don't, I don't have any other choices. I can either walk away or I can just play the game and hope it works. I mean, probably walking away would have been <laughs> the wise thing to do, but. Well, we'll get to that because you obviously did. But can you just break the myth a little bit to us, like level playing field? I think, you know, when we're outsiders, not in the cycling world, of course, everyone was doping. But that excuse like just kind of gets old and, and there's different degrees of doping. Like you said, there's different doctors. So can you just talk to us about that? So that, that there's two, two sides of that argument and both of them are valid in their own way. It's, it's not a level playing field because it, first of all, some people had access to better doctors and that knew how to use it better. And some people respond to drugs differently than well, everyone responds to them differently. Right. So it's, there's, there's no way to say that, you take the same group of people and just give them the same drugs that it's now you're going to have the same outcome. It probably isn't like that. So it does probably affect the outcome. Probably doesn't change every, everything. Right. But it's doesn't necessarily make it fair. And then the other argument is that, well, and the argument we came up with in our head, cause you know, we thought this through too. Like I don't want to feel like I'm cheating anyone. I, I want to feel like these are my colleagues, whether, you know, I like all of them or not, this is supposed to be a fair sport. The argument is that it's inherently unfair to begin with because some of us are on rich teams with money and we can go train in San Moritz and we can have, you know, our own chef and we can have all these other things that eliminate stress and allow us to train to an extent that other people can't because they don't have that. So to try to say it's fair in the first place is at least from the other point of view is to say that you know, everybody has the same opportunity, which obviously isn't right, because you're born with a different ability anyway. Then, but then the whole argument devolves into some philosophical thing about what's the point. So to, to your point, yes, allowing drugs doesn't make it any more fair than it would have otherwise been. It probably changes the outcome. So from a purist point of view, it probably is less fair. That's what I would say. I like that. Uh, I'm curious. Like, so you go there in 2002 to help Lance win. Four years later, you're winning. What was that transition like? And when did you think you could win the Tour de France? Uh, probably 2004, I, had, I finally, I had raced the Tour the two years before that, 2002 and three. The first year I did it, I, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't figure out how you would possibly win the thing. That was just in over my head, right? I, it's 
extraordinarily hard and it comes with all this other just chaos and, and stress, right? Not just the race itself, but there's these long drives before the start and after the finish. And it's just three, three weeks of really no sleep. Um, but you get used to it like anything else, right? So over those couple of years, I got better in 2004. I had a very, very good season. And Lance wasn't really forthcoming about whether he was going to race again in 2005. And I, I thought he would retire. Like I honestly thought, I mean, he, he, no one had ever won the tour six times and he won it the sixth time in 2004. And I figured, cause I, I mean, I could, I had some small level of, of pressure and stress that relative to him, but it was a lot right for me. And I thought, there's no way the guy would want to do that again. Like you, you won, you, you got the record. <laughs> no one's, no one's disputing that. Um, but he didn't want to, he didn't want to say anything about it. And I, I wanted to go, I wanted to race to try to win it myself and I couldn't get a straight answer from the postal service. So the, the team, the management. And so I left and I was initially, I was going to race. I figured I would race a year or two to try to help Tyler win. And at some point I would get a chance to win myself because I, I moved to the Phonak team or had an agreement to race on the Phonak team. And then, um, a few months or a month or so after I signed that agreement, then Tyler had his positive test from the, from the Olympics. I think it was. Um, so that would have been late 2004. And then I kind of just by default became the leader of that team. But I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I don't reminisce about it too much, but in hindsight, I probably would have been better off staying on the postal service team just because they had, better political protection, even though it's an, it's not like they had complete protection. It could do whatever they want. It's a nuanced thing, but cycling has its way of sort of protecting some people and not others. That's all. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really understand that at the time, I think. So talk to us about winning and then was it four days later? Yeah, it wasn't very long. What was that like? That high and that low. I mean, that is a high high and a low low. Yeah, it's a weird thing. So cycling is because the race is so long, and you're so overstimulated to begin with that it's it it it's not the same adrenaline feeling that you get from winning a one day race or a shorter race. Uh, it's more like partly a relief because if, if you are in a, in, in a position where you can win the race, it's for days at a time, right? It's, it's hard to sleep. It's hard to, I mean, you have to kind of contain what would otherwise be excitement and not let it get you excited. Right? You have to stay focused essentially, but, um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. I, I, you know, I, after what happened, I, sometimes I look back at it and it feels like it wasn't really real. It was like a movie, but um, but I, that part, I remember standing on the podium and I, I remember thinking to myself, I hope, cause I, you know, it takes a few days for them to do tests and they test you every day and there's always a risk. What I mean, it's just the nature of it because of what we were doing. I remember thinking, man, I hope this, <laughs> I tried to keep it out of my mind, but on the podium, I thought, all right, I hope this is going to be all right. Cause now it's going to be bad. It's not <laughs> like this one. I went big, right? This can be very, very bad. And a couple of days later, yeah, I got, 
I got a phone call and I like I don't think I slept for probably a week I uh, I don't I've never felt that much anxiety or just dread in my life I had about probably 48 hours before it was in the press maybe 24 I, I don't really remember time kind of ran together but there wasn't really anything I could do I wasn't prepared I didn't have a PR team and even if I had I was in a position where cycling wasn't going to have my back right there was no one that was going to get my back so yeah took a beating so I had, I had to get out of France I was still in Europe and I got a flight back home um through through Charles de Gaulle um the the more the day after it became public so my face was the cover of every newspaper in the whole rack just I got annihilated. It was bad. I put my hat on like this and I just kept my face down. I was just crushed. It was bad. It was among the worst experiences I've ever had. It's fascinating to me that that even crossed your mind while you were on the stand. I think that speaks to the anxiety that you had through that whole period of your life. What was going through that? I mean, you, you deny, you just try to disappear. What, I mean, I, that had to be the, the worst time of your life, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was the worst. I mean, so I think the reason that I thought about it then was because I, I wasn't really, I mean, Lance was very, very famous, right? He's a superstar. I was on his team. And if you were a cyclist, you probably had heard my name, but I wasn't that famous. So if I, if I have a positive test out of competition or some small race, it's bad for me in my life, but it's not front page New York Times, right? But it occurred to me at that time that this was now past that level. Like this is the the uh, the stakes are too high now. This this, this could be bad. Uh, but I immediately just dismissed it as there's no way that like after after all that after all the tests I've taken that would happen now. Um. But yeah, it's it's always there in the back of your mind, and it's not. Yeah. It's not good. I mean, I, I hope it's, for what it's worth, I hope it's better now, but I'm not hugely optimistic. No, unfortunately, either are we. But I think that's where a lot of the protection comes into play with you getting popped four days later. But on that, 10 years ago, you wrote a letter um, in 2010 exposing it all. I mean, you know, you and Kara, different, completely different scenarios, but can relate in being a whistleblower and how hard that is. Um, especially with this crazy adoration and like fandom that everyone had for Lance Armstrong. Talk to us about that because you ultimately exposed it all. What made you decide to go down that path? So, yeah, obviously it's different circumstances than, than you went through Karen. And I, I mean, if, if I had never been in on it myself, then I probably would never have been in a position to expose it for one thing. But if I'd never been in, in that or, or participated in it and I raised my hand and I say, you know, this is what's going on. I, I wouldn't have had the, it wouldn't have come with the same, I'm sure it would have come with plenty of anxiety, but it wouldn't have come with the same level of just dread. Cause now here, here's the problem. So and this country is weird, right? It has this like obsession with mobsters and, and they respect mobsters because they don't turn on their 
on their uh, on the other mobsters, even though they're all a bunch of cr criminals. Like somehow they're that's a that's a respectable thing. Um, and I I thought about this too, you know, for the two or three years that I've fought the anti-doping agencies, and and whenever I would think well, maybe I should just tell the truth, I would think then I'm really going to get crushed, right? And then now now I've just turned on all the people that supposedly are my colleagues, right? Like, this is not a very good mafia uh, analogy because mafia generally, you, you get their back and they get your back. This is not bad, but, but from the public's perception, that's what it was, right? That's the kind of press that I feared I was going to get initially, at least. Um, so I, I, I went through what I thought was, given, given that I was part of it and to some extent, probably for, for all intents and purposes, deserved the punishment I was getting as much as it felt unfair that no, no one else, or at least it felt like no one else was getting it at that time. I didn't feel like I needed to roll on those guys. Like, I, this is my fight to fight. I'll deal with it, right? But then, then I, you know, a couple of years passed and I went and I thought, okay, I did what I was supposed to do, right? Then I'll go race my bike and f at the very least, they'll leave me alone and let me race and then that didn't happen so i thought well then what was the purpose of all this you know why did i even get these guys backs like these guys don't have my back no no one's got my back and i dealt with that for probably a, that sort of mindset for a year maybe and and everywhere i went and every time i rode my bike because if the story was so big that's all I got to talk about. People would say, oh, I'm so sorry about what happened to you. And I felt bad. Like, I didn't feel bad that they felt sorry for me. And it was just a dumb conversation. Like, I can't spend the rest of my life having this conversation, right? And if there's nothing in it for me or anyone else for that matter, maybe, maybe there's some value in just telling the story. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe these guys can fix it. Maybe the anti-doping agencies really, if they're given, you know, the information, can do what they say they've set out to do and make it clean. I didn't really believe that, but I thought, well, whatever, there's no, there's nothing left to lose, right? So I guess at some point I just decided, well, I can't, I don't, there's, there's, there's no, no fight left to fight. I, here I am. I got to move on with my life. And the only way I can do that is to not have to tell this dumb, untrue story anymore. So I kind of spelled it out and just sent it to, to the USA Cycling and to Travis Tiger, and then then it started. Then it started what what probably prevented me from doing it a year sooner, which was another round of negative press, right? Because Lance had a real PR team, and he had Nike, and he had people that were going to get his back. Right? So they, you know, if you if you if you're a main main you know athlete for Nike. They can get very good stories printed about you in, in every sports publication because those people want press access, right? So I knew what was going to happen. No, I knew. I knew what I was going to get. And, and yeah, so I just bought a bunch of whiskey and <laughs> said, okay, I'm going to prepare for a long one. It was bad. And I, I'm sure I know how you felt. I, I'm, yeah, I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I'm, I, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I will never say I'm glad I went through any of that, but I also don't, I'm glad I don't have to, like, even, even if I had won the tour, because it's such a 
it's such a culturally just the cultural obsession now with who's cheating and who's doping and who's not. I would have to deny that for the rest of my life. Like I, I just, I'm glad I don't have to live with that as much as it was, a, as was brain damage to get through that hurdle of getting the truth out. But, um, but yeah, that, so that was my bigger fear. Once, once I decided I wanted to tell the truth was, do I really want to go through that? And is it really worth going through that? And the, the answer was it was worth it for me. I mean, I guess it ultimately it was purely selfish at that point. I just wanted to not have to, to lie about it anymore. But, and, and I don't know. I don't know if it had, frankly, if it had any positive long-term effect. It certainly didn't for Lance. And now, you know, he's probably going to hate me the rest of his life. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's solvable, but I'm not, I'm not convinced at the moment, given given the, the interests and the way they're aligned. Yeah. I've had people threaten my life. I'd imagine that happened to you. Did you ever just think like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get from a kid that liked to race mountain bikes yeah. to where I am right now? Yeah. I, there was a long time when I tried not to think about it and I just would drink a lot just cause it helped. I mean, for whatever reason, the other, the other thing that happened to me was I, because that was kind of, and this, I don't mean to imply anything more than it was kind of a drug in itself, like the feeling of riding a lot, right? That's what it was. It was, a, it was an addiction. And then all of a sudden that didn't have any satisfaction at all. Like I didn't come with any satisfaction. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to do it. In fact, it made me feel worse. And so I, the only thing that even came close to replacing it was was beer so I just drank a lot of beer and tried not to think about yeah the, the thought crossed my mind a lot like how did I get here and I immediately knew that there was no point in continuing with that thought because I, <laughs> I don't know yeah. I don't know how I got there I to this day I still don't know what I people say well, what would you do different I'm like I keep taking a step back and say at this point what would I do different and then I think well how did I get into that situation and then there's no end to it it just I don't know I don't know how it happened well, I really believe, you know, and Kara can attest to this and all of, uh, all of our listeners that it's always the right thing to tell the truth. And you've had to go through a lot, you know, um, like a lot of like hatred and guilt and I'm sure and depression to do that, but that is still the right thing to do at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, I hope, I hope something good came from it. I, I, I agree with you that yes, it's in the sense of right and wrong, it's better just to tell the truth anyway, regardless. But it would be nice if that, and I'm sure Kara feels the same way, having gone through that amount of just utter nonsense, that something positive would come of it. But I'm not convinced. <laughs> yeah. Sadly. I, I wonder if you could speak to the younger, the youth, right? That are like young cyclists or young runners, like what would you want them to have learned from your experience? Man, I, I think the only thing that, and, and I people, people always talk about, you know, not, not having regrets. And I don't really think there's any value in regretting anything, but um, I, I think it got to a point where somewhere along the way it lost its i think what and it probably started like i said earlier with with you know pharmaceutical enhancements that it lost its original 
kind of joy that it that it had and it's easy to sit there and say that now because i felt the two different different feelings and I think a young person wouldn't know that. And, and nobody thinks that that's going to happen to them. I didn't think that would happen to me, right? But I think that the, the only real lesson that, I, that there is in this story is that these things, that don't, let, don't let sports mean too much to your life. I think that's all there is to it. Because at the end of the day, if it, there is a point where it becomes something other than, other than what would make you happy anyway. And then, then it's just about money and, and politics and power and on, on a small scale, right? But that's what it is. And that, for me, was not in, in any way, even while it was happening, wasn't in any way satisfying like it was initially. But, but I wish I could say, you know, we went through all that and now, now things are better and you won't have to face that. But I, I think if you get... The closer you get to the top, the less likely that is. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so we don't want to spend too much time here, but obviously there's a documentary coming out on Sunday, um, Lance. And a lot of this, this quote keeps making the headlines. He, and he says in it, it could be worse. I could be Floyd Landis waking up a piece of S every day. I think that speaks more on him than it does on you. But what do you have to say about that <laughs> look I, I know the guy and so i i think i can s- say with certainty that he he regrets saying that i think he look he, he hates he hated me at the time I, I the more time that goes by the less you care about things that made you angry you know in the past and i and i don't know in what context or in what other within what other subjects she asked that question but it sounds like something Lance would say because he he hates me but he's not quite that shallow he he probably suffers from a lack of self-reflection or at least when I knew him he did but I don't take too much from that I mean he Obviously, I'm if 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 you're Lance and you're looking for a direct, you know, reason why your life is not the way it was ten years ago, then I'm an easy guy to point at because we we don't know what else would have happened. But absent that, it at least would have gone on for for some period of time longer before the truth came out. But you didn't influence his decision to cheat or lie or steal or take anything from anybody else. So no, he needs all. to but, own that. That's true, but it's a complex story, right? I mean, I also did it. It's not like I was on a pedestal. You know, I'm pure Floyd over here pointing at other people doing things wrong. So it's complicated. And he, yeah, he's a very intense guy to begin with. and. I'm, I'm not making excuses for him. I, I wish he would move on past it and, and just be happy with his life, but I don't take it as, I mean, it's, for me, it's, I, I view it a little bit different than people would from the outside, just because I sort of know that, you know, the, the tension that existed between Lance and I anyway, when we were racing after I left the team, there's, there's a lot to it, right? 
but clearly he doesn't. I mean, it wasn't a compliment. Let's put it that way. Do you get Do you get tired of being asked about Lance Armstrong? Are you ever just like, I don't fucking want to talk about him anymore? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, it's better now. It's a lot. I mean, the, the documentary brought the subject up and, and it's fine to talk about it now. But and there were a couple of years there where I was tired of it. But it, the last few years have, you know, I've kind of focused on other things. And most people that I'm around know that, or they know the story anyway, so they're not, not asking too many questions. But look, I, I don't wish any harm on the guy. He, I think, look, I know what it feels like to, to, to be absolutely annihilated by the press. And if, I mean, I, I can't imagine a worse punishment for somebody that cares that much about their image. So the guy has certainly been punished more than anyone for doping. Now that doesn't mean he's lost everything. I don't think that's justifiable either, but he certainly was punished. And I think if he could just find some, some peace, he'd be happier, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I mean, just think about if you could own your mistakes, you know, and make the world a better place because of them, you know, and share your story and the remorse. I mean, it is, it's no joke what you guys went through, obviously, you know, like looking at our own children and your children, I hope, you know, none of us want that for them. And it's our job to like, whether we come from good decisions or bad decisions to make the world a better place and, you know, give a platform of education and just awareness around that. And you're, you know, we appreciate you doing that. So, you know, speaking yeah. of that and like, and where you've come from all of those hardships, like, where are you now? Tell us about, tell us about you now. So I, I, uh, a couple of friends and I, four or five years ago now when they legalized marijuana in Colorado, started a marijuana, marijuana processing business here. We sold um, consumer products to, to dispensaries, right? So we manufacture different things, whether it's vape, vape pens and things like that. Um, and we kind of went our separate ways. Those guys still do some other stuff within the marijuana business. And I started another, just a brand um, when the, this um, opportunity with hemp CBD products came along. Um, and so I was, I was lucky to be in the kind of in the beginning of that because it came out of the marijuana movement. Um, and so I have a business and we sell branded um, CBD products and, and hemp derived products that we previous to this year, we used to make from um, Colorado hemp. Now I, we uh, last last summer we had a bunch of Amish farmers grow hemp in Pennsylvania for us, and so we process it here. Um, and so I've been focused on that, and and you know that that's it's this the last couple of years have been probably two or three years have been the first time that I haven't really. And I don't say this with any animosity towards cycling. I remember why I loved it, but it's better for me in my own mind to not be obsessed with it. And so this, for the last few years, I haven't really paid attention to cycling and it's, it's been, it's been good for me. I've had something else to focus on. It's hard to not, it's hard to leave something that, that's been your whole life and not think about it. If you don't have something else that matters to you that you're focused on, right? Otherwise you just revert back to wishing you'd done something different there. But so I run the business now, it's called Floyd's of Leadville and we just sell a variety of CBD products that we extract and we're quite proud of. And I think, you know, a lot of people find benefits from it for, you know, replacement for Advil and things like that. It helps some people with anxiety. 
um, it helps me a lot. It's something I'm not a great salesman if I'm just selling something for the sake of trying to sell it, but something that I believe in that's done a lot for me and helped me kind of manage my anxiety. And, and I think it's, it, it helps a lot of people. And so that's been my focus. And you're a father. I am. Yeah. I have a little daughter. She's five. <laughs> He's Margaret. Oh, it's the best. That part's good too. <laughs> that part's very, very good. No, it's yeah. I, she's my favorite little person. No, she wants to get into cycling and she's really good. What are you going to tell her? Oh man. Well, <laughs> I think first of all, now, now that I have kind of grown up and looking at it from the outside, it would cause me some anxiety to watch her race just because it's dangerous to begin with. Right. That's the first thing, but it, I, I would encourage her to do it. If she likes, if she, if she liked it as much as I did, I would, there's no way I would try to talk her out of it, but I would try to encourage her to find some other, uh, I don't know, obsession's not the right word, but some other focus to go along with it. So that when the time comes to make these other fucked up decisions you have plan plan b that is equally appealing rather than it's not like i didn't have any other options but i didn't i kind of that's all i thought about and all i did and it made it a lot easier to just justify it because there wasn't an alternative so i would encourage her to go to school and have some other some other hobbies at least it seems like you have found like a good piece in your life. And I really appreciate your willingness to relive all of this with us because it, it cannot be easy. I, I can't even imagine. But I do think that our listeners will kill me if I don't ask you this one kind of hard question. Um, are you sorry for what you did? And are you sorry to certain people for lying? Yes, I, I'm. I'm sorry for lying. I did. I never was comfortable with that, and I don't. And I wish I hadn't done it. Whether I'm sorry for for taking drugs to win bike races, I don't know if sorry is the right word. I I would say I I wouldn't I wouldn't do it again. Put it that way. But but for probably more complex reasons. And, and I don't really f buy into the idea that, you know, nobody was cheating because everyone was doing it. That doesn't really sit well with me either. Um, yeah, sorry is not the right word. But, but I, the problem with, my, my, with, that, with that sort of approach is that there is no way to to justify one and and then not have the other right if, if you if you accept that you're going to take these drugs then you accept that you have to lie that's the part i regret and i i'm sorry for that part i've i there's there's no one else that's responsible for it i had thought it through it was my i had accepted that that's the decision i had made so there's no one to blame um i don't know no, I appreciate your honesty. I'm not just not saying I'm sorry out of defiance. It's just not quite the right word. But the lying part was, yeah, I will never do that again. That's not for me. And it seems like it just went against your values of how you were being brought up, right? Like you were put in this position where no matter what, I think at the heart of it to really simplify doping, it is cheating. It is lying. It is not how 
you were brought up. No, it's not. And I guess part of my hesitation to say I'm sorry is because I've spent so much time thinking about it. Even back then, before, you know, before it all came out, I had to, in my head, I had to justify that this decision was okay. Maybe not the right or wrong decision, but this is the decision I made and this is the reason I made it. Like I didn't, I don't just go around doing things for no reason. And, and there's one, one definition of cheating is that you breaking the rules in any way is cheating, but you know, in sports, I mean, so in running, running is a very, very pure sport that doesn't come with all these other ways to kind of bend rules, right? Cycling, there's a million things you can do to, you know, within the tactics and, and other things that would be probably sort of against the rules or against the spirit of the rules. And, and then there's all these gray areas. And then that's how you end up kind of justifying. It's like in, in basketball, right? You, you, you fake getting fouled. They do all these things that are not like this is cheating. If you ask me, if you really want to get down to it, the best guy doesn't win by acting like he got hurt when the guy didn't try to hurt him and didn't hurt him. Right. But it happens all the time or using fouls when, when you're just using fouls, like a foul is, is against the rules and there's a penalty for it. But then you're just using up the amount of penalties you can get. So where's the line? Like the, the line's not quite black and white there. The line should be black and white when it comes to doping, but then, then there's all the confusion about, well, no one's enforcing it and then everyone's kind of in on it. And, and you can see it becomes easy to say, was I cheating or not, right? And so it's been a long, honestly, it's been a long time since I've really sat and thought about it. That's why I hesitate when you say, were you sorry? Because I spent enough time in my head trying to figure out why I did it and remember why I did it. Okay. I, guess, I guess, look, there's no way to say that I'm sorry for lying without being sorry for doping because I would have had no choice but to lie. But I'm not sure that I had thought that the whole way through either. <laughs> so, yeah. Who knows? I didn't really answer your question. No, that's okay. <laughs> I feel like you expressed some remorse there and it's just really complicated. <laughs> but I... I know that you hope you're not sure if anything good came from this, but I just want to tell you, it, it, you are, you are changing things like maybe not at the top level, but people like you that came and told and, you know, like had to take all the crap that came with that, that matters. And it matters to people like me who had to come forward, like really like seeing you survive that when I know it was the shittiest time of your life, but seeing you survive that, like it helps empower other people. And so I do want to thank you for what you did. I think. Thanks. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm just not being patient enough. Maybe these things, cause it is so, it, it went on for so long that maybe it just takes a long time to fix it. I don't know. Yeah. And there's a lot of trust to be lost, right. And a lot of multiple. Yeah multiple levels, you know, starting with governing bodies. Right. Um, so I think there is a lot of that, that probably holds a little bit of your apology as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving us so much of your time, Floyd. We definitely ran over what we asked yes. and I, no, it's fine. I, hopefully people can get some enlightenment out of it. I don't, I don't we did. I, I just hope yeah. it finds himself in that position. That's all that that would be bad. No, I think it's great. The way you talked us through everything, I think that's really powerful to hear. And I think um, it helps us just empathize with choices that people make. And it, you know, 
I, I think it's really, really helpful. So I really appreciate you being so open and honest with us today. Yes. Thank you, Floyd, very much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. So there you go. Floyd Landis, everyone. We thank him for being open and honest and for being so willing to answer all of the hard questions. We appreciate the remorse that he brings and we appreciate the openness that he's willing to share so that others don't make the same mistakes and so that we can all fight together for clean sport. Before we wrap, I wanted to also quickly say that we don't condone the use of marijuana-based or CBD products for professional athletes. We also encourage you, if you're taking any supplement, to make sure it's clean and safe through the resources at Informed Sport or through the NSF. As always, we thank all of you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about the Clean Sport Collective, you can go to cleansport.org, where you can also sign the Clean Sport Pledge or encourage others to sign the pledge. You can also follow us on social media at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco on Twitter and Instagram to join in on the conversation. Please come back, keep listening. We'll have another episode next week. We'll talk to you soon.